Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15. We're in the end of John chapter 15, and uh, we've been in this series that we have entitled simply The Gospel of John, where we've sought to meet Jesus, learn from Jesus, so that we can trust Jesus. And we're in the trusting part of that series. Jesus is in the final moments with his disciples. He has been preparing them uh, and getting them ready for the time that he's no longer going to be with them. And he wants them to know that what is going to happen to him inevitably is going to happen to them. Now that's important because when Jesus leaves, there's got to be some confusion amongst the disciples in John 15. What kind of response will happen if Jesus isn't with them? Now remember, they were some of the most popular people in all of Judea. They had been walking and living with Jesus, and Jesus had been doing these great and marvelous things, and it may have been some assumptions along the way that, listen, we're in the popular group. Things are going to be okay, and this talk of Jesus maybe is just self-induced, if you will. Uh, Everything's going to be all right. They had just been on the heels of uh, a triumphal entry of Palm Sunday where a parade was held in Jesus, and let's face it, in their honor. And so all of Jerusalem was talking about him, but things started to change. Judas had betrayed Jesus. Jesus now is talking about his life being in danger, and if there was ever any question of what the disciples were going to face in the hours and days and years to come, it is crystal clear in our passage this morning. Jesus says, listen, not if, that phrase if there is better translated when, the world hates you. Let's just hear that again. When the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus is going to use that phrase or that word hated six different times in our passage. He wants to be crystal clear at what the world's response is going to be to anyone who lifts high the name of Jesus. The disciples have been warned. If, if I had a Bible translation, I'm not planning on one, but from time to time when I look at headings in the Bible, my creative mind goes to places and I would have put as a heading for this, bad moon rising. Yes, Credence Clearwater Revival is going in my head as I read this passage. There are bad times ahead for the disciples. There are bad times ahead for Jesus. Now Jesus is ready. Jesus is prepared. Jesus is going to do the will of his Father in heaven. But what about his followers? Jesus wants to prepare the disciples for what is about to come. Now, as we look at this passage and we learn that the world hates us, we have to ask some questions this morning because this passage, while it seemingly is clear in our natural reading of the text, we need to rightly apply this passage not only to the people that are hearing it, the disciples and those who would read it in the first century, but also those who would read it today in other places outside of America, and then those who would read it like you and I within America. And there's some nuance that I want to make sure I draw out. And so, uh, Buckle your seatbelts, because we're going to go along a ride. And it's going to be a ride that I think is going to be incredibly helpful, but I would grab a pen, 
and I have given you plenty of space because I want you to write down things because I think there are some things you're going to need to think about. And, and based on the response of the first two services, people said, hey, tell the third service, get ready, okay? Be ready for this. So let's ask the first question. Who's Jesus talking about? The world hates you. When the world hates you, who is the you? Is it everybody? Is it anybody? Who is the you? Let us understand that in biblical interpretation, we have to stop and we have to understand first and foremost that you is to the audience of which Jesus is speaking to, the 11 disciples, the 12 minus one Judas, the 11 who are left. Jesus is speaking to them in a private setting and he's articulating to them just hours before his arrest, hours before his crucifixion, Jesus articulates to them probably in the Garden of Gethsemane that the world is going to hate you 11 men. Have no doubt about it, you will be hated. But it goes on and it's not just hated because we need to distinguish between those six references of being hated by the world and then Jesus uses this word and notice he uses it in verse 20, the word and he says it twice, persecuted or persecute. Hatred is going to lead to this activity, it's gonna lead to this thing that Jesus calls persecution. And what I want to be careful with is we throw around those words and we take this passage of scripture and we misapply it to issues of hatred in our lives and we say, well, I'm having bad things happen to me, therefore I'm persecuted. And I want to be really, really cautious to advise you to know what persecution means, what it is and what it isn't, and to rightly apply it and recognize whether you're being persecuted or not. And there's a lot of nuance there. So Jesus is talking to the 11. If the world hates you, 11 guys, recognize it hated me first. When the world persecutes you, 11 guys, recognize that it persecuted me before it did you. So the question we have to ask is, was Jesus right? When Jesus says that the world was gonna hate these 11 guys, is that true? Because Jesus made a lot of bombastic claims in his day, and we have seemingly found out in the Gospel of John that each of them are true, so we've got to ask this question. That's a pretty big statement. The world is going to hate you guys. Well, what does history tell us? Turn your attention to the screen. History tells us that the 12 men, including Matthias, who would take over for Judas in the book of Acts, all came to a very, very harsh end. Matthew, impaled by a spear in Ethiopia. James, the son of Zebedee, thrown off the wall and then clubbed to death. Jude was crucified by Magi in Persia. John, the writer of this gospel, died in exile after horrific beatings and abuse on the island of Patmos. Matthias, who took over for Judas, was stoned and beheaded. Philip was hung by iron hooks upside down. Peter, one of the most well-known of the disciples, was crucified upside down by... Caesar or Emperor Nero. Thomas, the doubting Thomas, which we'll learn about later in the Gospel of John, was stabbed with a spear in India. James the Lesser, as he was named, was beheaded in Palestine. Simon was crucified in Persia. Andrew, Peter's brother, was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. 
And Bartholomew was whipped to death in what is now modern day Turkey. So we can heartily say amen that Jesus was 100% correct when he said the world's gonna hate you and the world's gonna persecute you 11 guys. Now let's expand that because the Bible isn't just written to uh, one person, but let's recognize John is writing about an incident that happened to these 11 men and now he's writing to a first century group of people and he's remembering that Jesus said the world hates you. Now why would this be? Remember, John could have written about all kinds of things but he focuses on the things that you need to have so that you might believe. And so what was it about around 90 AD that John remembers about this interaction with Jesus and thinks it's important to pen? Because he wants to remind his original audience, the first century Christian, spread out that the world's gonna hate them as well. That the world is gonna persecute them. Behind me is another image, and the image shows the timeline of persecution. It would not have been a hard sell for John to say to them, listen, Jesus said the world's gonna hate you. Why? Because they hated Jesus, and now they're gonna hate us. When did persecution of Christians begin? It started with Jesus. Herod the Great, story of Christmas. Herod hears that the king of the Jews is going to be born in Bethlehem. The wise men trick him, and when they meet Jesus, go home a different route, and Herod gets angry, and he says, I don't know who the king of the Jews is, but what I'm gonna do is just kill all the boy babies, and so persecution begins because of Christ. And then persecution would continue with another Herod, and that is, I'm sorry, before Herod, Annas and Caiaphas, the religious leaders of the day, these guys would be the ones who would hand Jesus over to be killed. Annas and Caiaphas hated Jesus, wanted him dead, and they persecuted him to the point of death, death on a cross. And then after Jesus is dead, buried, and resurrected from the grave after he ascends to heaven, his followers go and speak Jesus to any and all who will hear. We see Stephen is martyred for his faith. We see Peter and John under the leadership of Nero losing their lives for their faith. We see all manner of the disciples and first century Christians losing their lives under Nero and Domitian. Uh, these two major persecutions would wipe out tens of thousands of first century Christians. The individuals who would read this book for the very first time would be individuals who would know someone or they themselves be under persecution upon the time of reading it. John had a disciple by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was probably with John when this gospel was written. Polycarp, at the end of his life, now another 80-some years after his time with uh, the Apostle John, would be killed, set aflame in the Colosseum of Rome. And so these individuals, Jesus was right when he said, the world's going to hate you, the 11. Now he expands it to John saying, these words for G from Jesus are alive and well in the first century. You need to understand, you're going to be persecuted, and the individual's that are living during the time of my writing this book are gonna be impacted as Jesus said. Now let's fast forward 2,000 years. 
2,000 years, and we have to ask the question, who's Jesus talking to? Is he talking to us? Now, right away, we would say as a society, we're way more technologically advanced, we're way more sophisticated, uh, we're way more tolerant. Surely, there isn't this kind of persecution going on. So Jesus isn't talking to us, right? Another graph. We're going to see that today, Christians, 340 million Christians, live under the threat of persecution each and every day. About 145 countries are what we would say hostile towards Christianity, okay? Of the 200 some odd known countries in our world, about 145 of them aren't all that together friendly to Christianity. But let's talk about the ones where you really have to worry as a Christian, and we get down to about 38 countries, 38 countries. And of those 38 uh, 17, you are really worried for your faith. Really worried for your faith. The problem is, is that still one in eight Christians alive today are under the threat of persecution because of their faith. So when Jesus says the world will hate you, it was true for the 11, it was true for the first century audience that was gonna hear this, and it is true for the vast majority of Christians living on this earth. Now we then have to contextualize and ask the question, what about us here in America? Is it really happening here? Now, let's just do a little American history. In 1776, a group of guys got together and thought they could form a better government than had ever been formed before. And one of the things that they created was this freedom of religion. And you and I have been a part of this grace that our forefathers blessed us with that gave us the ability to do what we're doing today in full confidence. And I'm thankful for that. And you should praise God for that again and again and again because 340 million Christians weren't worked up about worrying about whether there's a parking space for church on Sunday. They were worried about someone following them to church, right? They were worried about someone uh, doing something as a result of them going to church. And so we have this country that has codified in its constitution yours and my rights to worship untouched by the government, okay? And again, a wonderful grace. But let us recognize that that is not promised to us for the rest of our lives, we don't have that as a promise that will be there forever. And I'm not trying, listen, to be a boogeyman. I'm not trying to scare anybody. But let us recognize what we have is very much the exception to the rule. And I got to imagine that the devil hates this freedom. And he'll do everything in his power to try to erase this freedom from us, and here's the idiocy of the devil. He wants to get rid of this freedom, he wants to bring persecution, but you know what we see every time persecution is available or evident in the lives of Christians, the church grows, amen? And so here we are, and we've gotta ask the question, is my use of the word persecution, is my use of the word hated the right terminology? Let's, let's do some nuance, okay? First of all, we have to answer the question, what is persecution, what it isn't? Let's talk about what it isn't first, okay? 
So let's, let's understand, first of all, write these things down, important, I think, for you to recognize. Number one, disruptions in your life are not persecution. Disruptions in your life are not persecution. You lose your job, you get turned down for a loan, you have a business endeavor and it fails. These moments will often happen to Christians and there's a good chance that what has transpired is sad and it's heartbreaking, but it's not persecution, okay? You got turned down for your loan because of your credit score, not where you attend church, You got turned down for that job because all of your past references said that you were a lousy employee when it came to punctuality, all right? And so be careful that you recognize just because it's a disruption in life, it isn't because you're being persecuted. Don't be screaming, I'm being persecuted. You're not. The life of Abraham is a perfect one. Abraham, an incredibly faithful man. But have you ever noticed Abraham's life was full of disruptions because he made stupid decisions, had stupid decisions and mistakes? And the stupid decisions and mistakes, God was gracious to work with him on it, but it caused disruption after disruption. But nowhere does the Bible ever say that Abraham was persecuted. Let's move on. Affliction. Being afflicted doesn't mean you're being persecuted. We suffer trials and tribulations, and some of us say we're being persecuted by it, whether it's medical or physical or, or other things that are happening, bad things are going to happen, but it doesn't mean you're being persecuted. Listen to this. A whole book was written to the, of the troubles and tribulations of one man, Job. Job experienced afflictions upon afflictions, and it never says that he was persecuted by another human being. He didn't have these persecutions. There was a bigger thing going on. There was a bigger issue, but it wasn't persecution. And we need to be careful that the afflictions we have, we don't turn around and say, well, it's because I'm a Christian, I'm being persecuted. Number three, opposition doesn't mean you're being persecuted. You could have an enemy at work, at school, or in the neighborhood, or in your family. It could be because you're rivals. It could be because you're competitors. It could be because you have bad blood between you. You maybe have gotten into a verbal fight or even a physical altercation with this person. This person may want harm done to you. This person may want to bring you down. This person may even want to kill you, but it doesn't mean they're a persecutor. It just means you have an enemy. You have an individual who doesn't like you. For whatever reason, it could be because you've done something to them, it could be because you're just a victim. Uh, Let's look at the life of Joseph. Joseph experienced opposition from his own brother's hands, and it wasn't persecution, it was jealousy and envy, and a terrible, toxic family environment that allowed for them to do such abusive things to their brothers. But Joseph wasn't persecuted, as Jesus is speaking about here. So the question is, if it's not disruption, if it's not affliction, if it's not opposition, then what is persecution? It's simply this. It is the systematic mistreatment of an individual or group of individuals because of their Christian faith. You should underline that if you're taking notes. It's because of your Christian faith. It is because of your relationship with Jesus. Let's just connect this real quick. Leave that on the screen. Connect that for a moment to what Jesus just said. Persecution comes first to Jesus. They persecuted me, and now they're gonna persecute you. What Jesus is saying is, they're gonna beat at the vine, and you, because you're connected to the vine, are gonna feel those beatings. 
They're gonna seek to cut the vine, and when they cut the vine, you're gonna feel it because you're attached as branches. And so the idea of persecution is you're experiencing hardship, you're experiencing hurtful things because of your connection to Christ. Therefore, it can come in forms of physical abuse, torture, rape, mutilation, destruction of property, imprisonment, and murder. But it also can involve cultural and societal discrimination, family excommunication, loss of job, income, loss of family and friends, inability to marry, prevention of education, and many other forms. Some of you have come to know Christ at a later time in your age. You've lost friends as a result. And you've had to make a decision. Follow Christ or follow your friends. Some of you have lost relationships Uh, romantic relationships because you've chosen Christ and you've chosen to follow Christ instead of following um, the ways of the world and the ways of the flesh and you've lost it. That is in some ways a level of persecution because you've stood for Christ, you've stood for what Christ has called you to do and you've, you've now lost something as a result. Some of you have lost jobs because you have made a decision you're not going to uh, scheme or steal uh, from people. And you've been told, listen, you need to do this or you're going to lose your job. And you've said, listen, as a Christian, I cannot do it. You've lost that job. That is persecution. It has to do with your connection to Christ. Now, We've got to be careful because we use this phrase, persecution, all the time. And the world is getting a little bit um, angry about it. In the Atlantic uh, periodical, it, it put this, what they call the evangelical persecution complex. And this is us crying foul every time we think we're being persecuted. And they're like, listen, we don't think you're being persecuted. And they can give reasons why. And the author does a nice job of articulating even some things that we wouldn't want to hear as Christians. So how do we make sure that we're not calling everything persecution? But how do we know? Because I've got to imagine, as was in the first two services, But there are many here today saying, I've lived in America long enough, and I recognize we're not experiencing the persecution that's happening in other places in the world, and we may not be experiencing what Jesus is saying, but it sure feels like the hatred of the world is growing. How many would agree with that? You're feeling that, okay? And it's like, what's going on? And, And we need to recognize that so that we can respond correctly. Again, write some things down. Let me, let me help you. Something that was really helpful for me is what is called the five stages of persecution. And it helps to kind of put a narrative to what you might be feeling or thinking. And hopefully it is bringing words to maybe something you weren't sure about in the first place. But likewise, hopefully it's harnessing some of us who might have that evangelical persecution complex, not to be so quick to call something what it's not. So the first step within this, the author says, is stereotyping. Stereotyping. And this will happen in different ways, but in our world today, it's going to happen primarily through the media. And so any form of media that you'd have, what will happen is Bible-believing Christians will be caricatured in media as Bible thumpers, simpletons, backwards, mentally simple people, haters of science, 
and, uh, and we'll, we'll get that. Uh, let me give you a great example of that. If you watch the show The Simpsons, you know Ned Flanders, right? Ned Flanders was the world's definition of a fuddy-duddy Christian who simply was just kind of an idiot, okay? And you'd sit there and you could laugh and, and you could say, well, I know Christians like that, okay? But at the end of the day, the characterization is that we're weirdos. And it comes across benign, but we start there. And so there's this stereotyping. Then the second thing that comes is the idea of vilifying. So you stereotype the group, now you vilify. As the stereotyping grows in intensity, what will happen is you'll start to talk about this group of people, these Christians, and you'll say, do you know what they believe? They believe some really wacky stuff. And, and, and as they uh, believe these wacky things, the problem is, is they're in our family. These whack jobs are in our workplaces. They're in our schools. They're in our neighborhoods. Uh, we gotta be careful of this. And so what, what we gotta know is we gotta recognize they're not just wacky, but they're intolerant, hateful, bigoted, unfair. They're a problem. And so there's this vilifying of, of, of the Christian community. Then there can be, if it continues, the marginalizing of the group. And so what will happen is, and this is, I love America, because America says this can't be touched. What we're doing can't be touched. The Constitution gives us that. Listen, uh, while we saw some of it amidst COVID, uh, the federal government, for the most part, stayed out of the assembling of churches. We had some radical mayors and things like that that made decisions, and there were court cases. And if you notice, probably the, most, the biggest one was uh, Grace Community Church, John MacArthur's church in L.A., was, was tried uh, for having services open during COVID. They won, and they won numerous times in the court. We have the ability to do church. This, this i got to be honest with you, is not my concern. But what the world will say as it begins to marginalize us is it will say, you can do this here. You can't do it out there. Does that make sense? You can do it here, you can sing your songs, you can pray your prayers, you can talk about Jesus, do whatever you want, but keep Jesus at the corner of Route 47 and Bliss Road. Don't bring Jesus into the corporate world, don't bring Jesus into the schools, don't bring Jesus into anything, you've gotta keep it right here. And some of you may be feeling that right now, where you're like, listen, nobody has a problem that you're a Christian, maybe face to face, but don't bring it anywhere that it might impact others. That's the marginalizing. The next thing they say is the penalizing. And the penalizing is where this gets more serious, okay? And this is where jobs are threatened, this is where you start seeing people getting canceled in our new vernacular. This is where individuals are pressured that they need to either toe the line or else. Now, I, I gotta be honest with you. I'm a businessman in the world. I serve in community uh, things. I serve on a board of education. Uh, I'm in the world, okay? So those that don't know me, I don't want you to think, well, he's a pastor and he's talking about something he's not a part of. I'm a part of the world. I will tell you in my business world and even in my realm of the school, I've not had a penalizing in any way. I will tell you I did as a pastor. So years ago, Governor uh, uh, Ryan uh, asked me to uh, come and uh, 
give an invocation for a dual session of, of our state legislature. And I went, and I'd done it before, and it was always a joy for me to do. I never used it as a place to beat up our politicians, but to pray a blessing over them. And the Speaker of the, of the House uh, introduced me, myself to him. I told him I was, uh, a part, I was invited by the governor, was excited to do that. And the Speaker said, listen, I see that you're from a Bible church. You're an evangelical. Listen to me. I don't want to hear the name Jesus. And I would highly recommend, and he was holding my hand and he was squeezing it, I would highly recommend that you not bring up the name Jesus in your prayer. I am a Jewish individual, and that's an affront to me, of which we had a wonderful, lively conversation that as a Christian, my greatest calling and opportunity is to come to bless you fine people as our leaders. I, I told him I wasn't going to do anything that in essence would speak out or use that platform in an unbecoming way. But I said, I'm going to preach or I'm going to pray in the name of Jesus. And I'm sorry you don't like that. As I prayed, the church was able to watch it. Of course, it was public. And the response of the guy, you could hear him. I said, Jesus, a handful of times, as I normally would, you would hear him grunt behind me. Every time Jesus, and the reason why he was doing it was trying to put pressure, come on, pastor, don't you know how angry I am behind you that you're doing this? This kind of stuff will begin to happen more and more. Maybe it is, maybe it never will in your life, but this is where we will begin to be criminalized. Criminalizing happens on the social standpoint, also happens in the legal standpoint. We don't hear a lot in the legal. Again, the Constitution has held strong for us, and we should be encouraged by that. What inevitably will happen next is the exterminating of the Christian presence, okay? This will demand that Christians be exiled. This will demand that Christians be imprisoned for long periods of time. They're beaten to submission. Threats of violence or taking of one's life can happen. We are seeing this happen all over the place in other parts of the world. Most namingly, just after the war in Iraq was over and ISIS began to take over, a place that's near and dear to my heart. Some of the most horrific stories of Muslim extremism took place in uh, Iraq where Christians were running for their lives. Stories, horrific stories of Christians having their children kidnapped, babies kidnapped from them, only to be returned after being boiled alive. They are presented to their people, their, their parents, on a bed of rice, telling them to curse God or themselves die. These are horrific stories. And this is why I think it is altogether offensive for us to use the same word and say, just as they're being persecuted, hey, listen, I posted something on Facebook and some people said some nasty things to me. Not the same thing. And so we've got to be careful that we recognize, is there pressure? Yes, there's pressure. All right? And yes, we need to respond. Now, all of this, I did this last time. We're still in we're point one. <laughs> okay, let's go to point two, okay? I don't even know where I'm at in my notes. Point two, okay? Why does this happen? What causes this trouble, okay? The, the answer is in the text. And I apologize because to preach this text, the text speaks for itself, okay? We're going to be hated, and here's why the text says very clearly. Because the world hates Jesus. 
It hates Jesus. Well, why would the world hate Jesus? And why would the world hate us in connection to Jesus? The answer is, Jesus says, because I expose their sins. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. It's not that they would have been innocent, it's that they would have remained ignorant, okay? And so Jesus says, I came into the world and I start exposing their sin, and they don't like that. And so if you're gonna expose people's sin, people aren't gonna like it. Recognize the gospel message is that people repent. They do a 180 from how they're living and about face and they go in the exact opposite direction. What that means is when you present the gospel to somebody, listen very carefully. You're telling them their way of life, the way they're living their life is wrong and hell-bound, and you're telling them they're loving life, they're enjoying life, they're, it's their best life now, and they say, you have the audacity to tell me that I am on my way to hell? Who the you-know-what do you think you are, right? They're not gonna like you. They're not gonna throw parades for you. If you are preaching Christ, inevitably the world is gonna come after you, and they do it because they did it to Jesus, And we need to recognize that. We need to recognize we work for the enemy and that Jesus, enemy to the world, if you will, and that Jesus exposes people to their sin. Now, this is what we've got to remember. We were once there, right? We were once ignorant like they were. And someone had the strength and the courage and the audacity to tell us, stop living in your sin and turn to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. And you, by the grace of God, did it. So before you start demagoguing these people as evil and and terrible individuals unlike you, recognize you were there also and you would still be there if it wasn't for the grace of Jesus Christ. And so we need to recognize that the reason why they caused this trouble is because Jesus said it was going to happen. Jesus says it was prophesied, Psalm 69, 4, that they would hate me without cause. Jesus is saying, I've done nothing to them, but show them the way to eternal life. What that means is the way of the Christian is to live like Jesus, so that when they persecute you, they do it not because of you, but because of Christ's message. They hate me, not because of what I'm doing, but what Christ has done and said in the world. So where does that leave us? What steps need to be taken? The world's gonna hate us, what do we do? As a world, as a Christian in the world, I love what the text says. This is so good. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So therefore, if the world hates you and persecutes you, you following along with me in my Bible? Then find a big ranch in Montana. Get off the grid and never be heard again. Jesus, you're so good, right? No, Jesus says, and the disciples would say, even amidst persecution, live like Christ. Live like Christ. And so I want to give some takeaways here that I want you to remember in a world that hates you what ought be done. Number one, just write these down. I think they'll be helpful. Expect to be hated. Maybe you're not being hated right now. Praise God for that, right? Praise God that you're not being hated. But I would ask the question, 
Are you not being hated because you're a friend of the world? Write this down. This is extra credit. You didn't get this in the first two services, okay? It's because I love you more, all right? (laughs) Think of it this way. If you live for the love of the world, you'll experience the wrath of God. If you live for the love of the world, you will experience the wrath of God. If you live for the love of the world, you will experience the wrath of God. Second, if you live for the love of God, you will experience the wrath of the world. If you live for the love of God, you will experience the wrath of the world. Make sense? So, expect hardships Expect to be hated. John 16, in this world you'll have tribulations. Uh, that word can be rendered persecutions. But take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Number two, be exemplary in your following of Christ. First Peter 2, 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The idea here is you are going to live an upright life. Now, the world is going to hate that. And here's an illustration. It worked in the first two services. Maybe it'll work here. Your pastor's been to parties. I know it's going to frustrate some people, okay? Pastor's been to parties. Your pastor's been to parties where other people have drank and gotten drunk. Maybe you have as well, okay? What I've come to realize as a non-drinker and a non-drunkard is when I'm in those scenarios where people are um, drunk, they don't like sober people. How many have experienced that? Drunkards don't like sober people. And the reason why is drunk people do drunk things, and they don't want sober people to remember those things come the next day, okay? And so there's this uneasiness. There's this uneasiness of, of, wait a minute, why aren't you joining us in this? Well, listen, I'm not a drinker. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. You can come up with every example. It really doesn't matter. You're just not drinking, and that becomes a problem. And I've noticed, and Amanda and I both have noticed, when that happens, we are the odd people out. And it's like, wait a minute, we're not falling on the ground. We're not this. We're not that. And we're the odd ones, right? That is very similar to what our relationship with the world will be. We are a sober people living in a drunken world. And people are going to be like, what is your problem? Why are you walking straight? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And we need to recognize that the world is going to struggle with that. That doesn't mean we start drinking with the world. That doesn't mean that we start cutting corners Listen to me, church, you need to be the best employee you can be. You need to be the best student you can be in your schools. You need to be the best neighbor that you can be. You need to be the best person that you can be, even though they accuse you and persecute you for doing wrong. They glorify God because of the good deeds you've done. Number three, or four, endure hardship like a good soldier. That means buckle up, friends. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, endure hardship like a good soldier. It's a war out there, and we need to recognize we need to be ready for it. Maybe it's not as hot of a front as you may, may have others feeling. The next one, 
is a big one. Eliminate self-induced trouble. Some of you are saying you're being persecuted for your faith, and listen, and I say this in all humility, it's because you're being a jerk, right? If you really are honest, you are just a jerky individual. You are not a very nice person to be around. You are not everybody's friend at work, and it is not because of the banner of Christ that you're carrying around. You're a Christian who doesn't play well with others. And I will tell you, my heartbreaking moments, and I see it on social media a ton, some of my own church, I'm reading, going, what in the world are you thinking and doing? You're creating a war that doesn't need to be had. What are you doing? This is not what God has called us to, but we get on there, I'm gonna win this argument, I'm gonna do this, and you're not. You, you, listen, when you get in a fight with a pig, my dad said, you both are gonna get muddy and the pig's gonna like it. Some of you, that just blew right by. Did I just get called a pig by my pastor? Some of us got to eliminate the self-induced troubles got to cut it out, okay? We're creating our own problems. You're creating a whole list of enemies. Listen, just be a Christian. You'll have all the enemies you need, okay? The next one, really important. Exercise your right as a citizen, Romans 13. We live in America. We've got rights. Utilize those rights. Uphold religious freedom. We've got legislators in the other room right now going to be available to you guys after this meeting if the pastor ever gets done. And, uh, They're here to help us to support the issue of life with regards to the travesty that abortion is in this state and in our country. We have the right as citizens. We should utilize those rights to the best of our abilities. We should do it in submission to the laws of the land, but we should exercise these rights. Even more important, educate yourself on the persecuted church throughout the world. There's links on your sermon insert that you can follow. Maybe spend less time on social media and more time on this, why don't you learn some stories about people that are living beautiful lives of faith amidst terrible, terrible turmoil and tribulation. Matthew 5, 11, and 12. Blessed are you, people. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We've got a lot of thinking to do and I pray no matter what happens in the good, the bad, and ugly of life that we will remain in Christ for his glory and for our good. Amen.